Hello, friends. Greg Kokel and Stan Reason, And I've got to say this before I forget, because I forget so easily. And this is a kind of mini announcement. It, I am going to be in Owasso, Michigan this weekend. So you'll be getting this broadcast on Friday if you listen to it promptly. And I'm speaking all day Saturday or the bulk of the day Saturday on uh, on tactics, like four or five hours worth. And then Sunday morning on uh, at the main service there. Um, and <laughs> I'm trying to remember the name of the church because I don't have my notes here in front of me. I guess I could look on my phone. Oh, well. If you go to str.org, um, you can find my schedule, okay? And Owasso is just a little bitty town, what, 10, 15 miles north of East Lansing, Michigan, where I spent two years as a student at Michigan State University, and they were wonderful years for me, as it turned out. I didn't know the Lord at the time, but I was footloose and fancy-free, and I had good relationships, and it was an interesting time in my life, at least for most of it. Things went south towards the end, and uh, interestingly, the the fact that they went south was one of the things that woke me up to reality and I think was a factor in uh, me becoming a Christian. These are things that God used. Anyway, I'm looking forward to going there this weekend. I'll be flying out Friday, and I'll do Saturday and then Sunday morning. Owasso, O-W-O-S-S-O, Michigan. So just just so you know. The following week, I will be in uh, North Carolina and somewhere. (laughs) Not Charlotte, somewhere kind of closer to the coast, but my apologies, I, I didn't bring my announcements in here at Harmony. God bless your heart. She sent them to me, and I printed them out, and then I left them in the other room and then forgot to get them during the break. But anyway, maybe in the next break, I will bring you all up to date on all the important things. Um, but there you have it. I have a question. We've been doing open mic calls. That means uh, people who want to ask a question but uh, are not really able to call up and stay in the queue, um, can call us and leave their question on the open mic. That can be done on the website or just a straight-up phone call to uh, 857-DIAL-STR, 857-DIAL-STR, or 857-342-5787. If you want to use the computer, just go to the home page, look under Podcasts, and under live broadcasts, and uh, follow the prompts. So we have a call here, and um, I'm taking this because I've wanted to talk about this for a long time. There's some other people in the queue before this particular caller, uh, but um, now I'm looking for it. Um, It's the one about uh, replacement theology. Um, In Old Earth, can you discuss? Oh, there it is, uh, Matthew Anders. Can you find that? You got me? Okay, let's talk with Matthew. Or Matthew can talk with us. Okay, we're working on it. Okay, <laughs> he's saying, keep making noise, Mr. Kokel. So while we find Matthew Anders, there it is. Okay, here we go. Grace and peace from sunny Florida. Mm. This is Matthew and Jupiter asking if you guys wouldn't mind discussing replacement theology and giving some opinions on that topic. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, and God bless. Yeah, that's a great question, and as I understand replacement theology, it's the idea that God had a program with the Jews, 
and the Jews messed it up really badly, and so then God turned to the Gentiles. So this doesn't mean that Jews can't be saved, of course. Um, that's pretty obvious that they can be in the early church, the first century, were almost all Jews. Certainly, I should say, the first wave coming out of Jerusalem. Then as the gospel expanded to Gentile areas like Galatia and to Rome and Thessalonica and Greece and all that, well, then uh, more Gentiles were added in. It, this has to do with a theological shift. That is, that God made promises to the nation of Israel, and they 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 performed so poorly that God then shifted and uh, and made replacement with the church for Israel. And in the church, there is no neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, etc. And so this would mean that national Israel, as a national entity, no longer has a place in God's program. Now, so this is the way. I understand replacement theology to work. So my critique or my response will be according to that definition. Somebody says, that's not what replacement theology is. Well, then I'm not answering that other question, but I am. There are a lot of people who believe this, what I just described, and so I want to speak to that. It's my conviction that God made a, a promise to national Israel to accomplish something with national Israel, and he made it as an unconditional promise as to its final fulfillment with national Israel, and he repeated this promise time and time and time and time and time again through the Hebrew Scriptures, such that this is the way the Jews understood the promise to be made. So in the minds of the hearers of the promise, this is what they understood, God's promise to national Israel. And in fact, it was almost a universal theology at the time of Jesus that Jesus had to fight against. The idea, Now, and, and again, when I say fight against, it wasn't the idea that God had promises to national Israel, but that this promise is entailed merely an upsetting of, or an overturning of a political system, and an exalt, exaltation of Israel at the um, at the expense of Gentiles in some sense. Okay, and um, my point is that um, when I when I look at the promises, that there's no possibility, given the the kind of promises that were made, that this is what God had in mind and exchange this way. Now, I realize there are statements in the New Testament that um, make it clear that circumcision is not a circumcision of the body, but it's a circumcision of the heart. That is, a Jew is not someone who is a Jew outwardly, but a Jew inwardly. Now, those verses have to be taken into consideration as to what it is that the New Testament writers were speaking of when they made that statement, okay? But what we can't do, it seems to me, is we cannot understand those verses in a way that completely contradicts or abrogates the the claims that were made and the promises that were made in the Hebrew Scriptures to national Israel, okay? So, I want to just go back early on and see how this whole project started, okay? And the place that I want to go to 
is Genesis chapter 12, all right? Because that is the beginning of the rescue plan. Uh, virtually universally acknowledged, okay? This is not any, this isn't cocal theology. It isn't just my dispensational deal. Everybody pretty much acknowledges that, <coughs> pardon me, that Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses, are really the plan that launches everything that follows. And incidentally, um, what I'm giving you now is a little bit of a survey of um, ideas that I develop in an entire course called the Bible Fast Forward. There are eight 50-minute sessions that take us from the fall all the way to Jesus and shows the interconnectedness of the plan outlined in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and how it plays itself out through the subsequent covenants. So Genesis 12 starts out with what's called the Abrahamic covenant, which is the granddaddy of the covenants. It is the rescue plan. Then there is the Mosaic covenant that had a temporal purpose, and that was replaced by the new covenant. And the new covenant and the Mosaic had purposes that were valuable and important, but the Mosaic covenant was broken and the new covenant replaces it. And by the way, that it was broken was mentioned by Jeremiah, <laughs> a Jewish prophet, and the promise of the new covenant was to the Jews. It included Gentiles. Ultimately, it would accomplish the fulfillment of the Abrahamic, which is the umbrella covenant overall, uh, but the new covenant does not abrogate the terms of the Abrahamic covenant, okay? And uh, and that covenant, uh, simply put, is, the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land I will show you. Now, he did that. Um, <laughs> it was a, you know, some speed bumps along the way. But the heart of the promise, I will make you a great nation, okay? I will bless you, make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. In other words, God is going to do something in Abraham for the purpose of being a blessing to who? I will bless those who bless you, the one who curses you all curse, this is protection, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the great nation is promised to Abraham. Okay, Abraham has no kids. Chapter 15. We see a conversation God has with God in a vision. God says to him, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham's, or Abram here now says, O oh Lord, what will you give me since I am childless? Now, this is really important. Abram is taking the promise to have a great nation as physical progeny. The promise is to the physical progeny. That's the way he's taking it. But he's looking, he said, look, I got no kids. I'm an old man. I'm child. I'm childless. Childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, the head of his household, his servant, would be the one that would get his inheritance if he died childless. So he's wondering, well, so that's the way it works here. Is it Eliezer 
that this promise will pass too. And then God says, the word of the Lord says this, verse 4, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own loins. He shall be your heir from your own body. So this is an unmistakable promise that the nation of promise would be a physical nation. Now, there's a purpose for this physical nation, which was called the chosen people. They were chosen to do a number of things. One of them is to represent God to the world. Another one is to uh, be a kingdom of priests. Actually, that's what that amounts to, representing God to the Gentile nations, and also then producing, we learn later, later the Messiah who would be a blessing for all the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Now, the Jews didn't have this in mind most of their existence. They were thinking about themselves. Nevertheless, there was a promise to themselves that they focused in on. Even Solomon understood that this shall be a the temple that he built will be a place of prayer for all nations. Now, the Jews didn't do too well on this one, and uh, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They were not faithful to the law. And we have the book of Judges. We have, well, the numbers, num- just they get the law, and then they mess up for 40 years. Then you have them taking the land. Joshua does a pretty good job. And then you have 400 years of Judges, and it's all messed up. Then you have King Saul, David, Solomon. Then there's a civil war because of idolatry. And then there's the, this kingdom is split, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. No good kings in the north. Finally, they're disbanded by the Assyrians. And uh, the south lasts a little longer. And then there's Babylonian captivity, 486 or whatever, for 70 years. And then they trickle back to the land eventually. At least some of them, a, rem, a remnant does. So this, this has not worked out well. Nevertheless, God has made an unconditional promise. And we know it's unconditional because they're in... Genesis 15, God cuts a contract with Abram. There's a sacrifice involved, but Abram is put to sleep. And it's only God who, in a sense, in the context of the culture of the time, signs that contract. So we know it's unilateral. God is going to ensure that it will ultimately be fulfilled. Okay, and so when when um, when Jesus comes, the expectation is for the rescue of Israel, and even in the Book of Acts, at the beginning of the Book of Acts, and let me just go there, um, that the the disciples are still like a little bit confused as to the breadth of Jesus' um, ministry and purposes in the world. Okay, and uh, and here's what we see there: just as Jesus is about to um be a, a ascend into heaven all right um gathering them together he commanded them not to leave jerusalem and verse 6 so when they had come together they were asking him saying lord is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to israel i just want you to notice something if replacement theology was accurate if God was going to uh, uh, walk away from the promises of Israel, and now this is going to be the church as a replacement. The church has a unique role. There's no question of that in my mind. 
But what about national Israel? Then God, Jesus would have said it here. No, no, you just don't understand it. You're missing the point. Now, they did miss a point, but not that one. Here's what he said. It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, he doesn't take exception with their concept of what's going to happen. He takes exception with the timing. Now, there's a reason why they would be confident, even in spite of the fact that Israel was a mess for all of its history. Okay? Virtually. I mean, it's a generalization, but there are very few times when everything was just going right. You had a couple of kings in the south, Hezekiah, for example, things went right, there's reforms, but yeah, for the most part, there's a lot of trouble, a lot of idolatry. So when they're in captivity in Babylon, Jeremiah speaks as a prophet, and one of the things that he says, the famous abuse verse, 20, Jeremiah 29.11, and all the context, is that, look, it, you're only going to be there for 70 years, and then I'm going to fulfill my good word to you. But he also says that there is going to be a new covenant. So I'm going to read Jeremiah 31 and verse 31 and following. This is central to the new covenant, like New Testament. The old covenant is old. There's value to learning things about it, but it isn't the operational covenant. There is a new covenant, but the new covenant is still a Jewish covenant. Here's what Jeremiah says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Notice it's with national Israel. Now, it's going to turn out that that new covenant has overflow effect to the Gentiles, and that's the blessing to the Gentiles. But notice that Israel and Judah are intact in God's mind, even though both of them are out of the land now. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So the Mosaic covenant got busted. This is going to be a different kind of covenant that cannot be broken. Here it is. This is the covenant, verse 33, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them and on their heart, and I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." They will not teach again each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Notice now, he's, what, however this covenant works out, it's going to entail a personal knowledge of the Father, not tied to the law, a personal relationship. We'll learn in Ezekiel that it entails giving of the Holy Spirit, and complete forgiveness, personal forgiveness. All right? Verse 35, next verse. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name, if this fixed order departs. What fixed order? The sun for light by day, the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night. If this fixed order departs, in other words, if the sun goes away and there's no more stars, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me. 
if the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel from all for all that they have done. Now, this is hyperbolic. As long as you can see the sun and moon in the sky, as long as the heavens are not measurable, then you know that my promise is still intact. I have not cast them off. Now, saw the sun today, saw the moon last last night, stars were out, which you can still see in Los Angeles. That means the promise that God made to national Israel is still intact. Now, that doesn't do violence to the nature of the church, because the church is a function of the new covenant, the giving of the Spirit, and within the church, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. And the the work of the new covenant, which is the giving of the Spirit and full forgiveness of sins, is unrelated to whether you're Jew or Gentile. You are, you are a ben- beneficiary of a Jewish covenant, the new covenant, a real Jew, in virtue of your faith in Christ, a real Jew in a new covenant sense. But that does not mean that the promises made by God to national Israel, to Abraham, unilaterally sealed by him in Genesis 15, and repeated time and time again, including right here in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following, when the new covenant is explained, he reaffirms again that he is not going to abandon his people Israel as a nation. And in fact, it's the same thing that Paul says in Romans um, between 9 and 11, right in there, where he talks about that. You know, God hasn't cast off his people, Israel. No, and they, were, they are going to be given their promise, I think, the national promise, when the fullness of the Gentiles are brought in. So there is, there is no reason, I think, to adopt a replacement theology which, which disabuses theologically the Jews of the promise of God regarding their nation, which has been made over and over again and affirmed in an unmistakable way in Jeremiah 31, in order for the new covenant and the unique nature of the church to go forward. It's not an either-or. Jews who believe in Jesus are members of the church. National Israel will someday be revived characteristically as a nation, and they will all be believers, which means they'll all be part of the church eventually, too. But national Israel has a particular role that God will fulfill. How that gets fulfilled, you know, those details are a little bit more difficult for me, but uh, this would make me a dispensationalist of some sort, because I see a unique role in God's economy for the, for the nation of Israel. But I can't, I can't, no matter what I think of the quality of the church, the new covenant, even in Galatians, it's talk, whenever it talks about the giving of the Spirit, it's talking about the New Covenant. It's not talking about the totality of the Abrahamic and, and the uh, Davidic Covenant. Uh, well, that refers to Jesus, but the Palestinian Covenant, which has to do with the land, it's not referring to that. It's referring to the special covenant that we read about in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, the New Covenant, in which the Holy Spirit is given, and our sins are forgiven completely which Hebrews talks about, too. Anyway, so there's my <laughs> my short little homily about uh, 
replacement theology, and I hope that um, that made sense. Like I said, this is just like the tip of the iceberg on this broader issue, and I go into a lot more detail in the uh, course that Standard Reason offers called The Bible Fast Forward, which you can get on DVD or whatever. Go to our bookstore at str.org, and you can get it there. I highly recommend it. I, I really have had a lot of people tell me, boy, did this make a difference. If you if you follow the story of reality, God, man, Jesus, cross-resurrection, between man and Jesus, there's a lot of time that passes. It's like Genesis 3 all the way to the Gospels. So what fills that gap in conceptually, theologically, that takes us from the fall and soon after to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant to Jesus? How does that all work its way out? with the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the New Covenant, and the coming of Messiah, the advent of Messiah. That's what I explain in the Bible Fast Forward, so just offering it to you. Okay, more people online uh, to chat with. Let's do that after this break. Greg Kokel here for Standard Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org donate. All righty. I am a good talk show host now, a duly obedient one. I have Harmony's notes here. Um, and what this means is Minneapolis, November 11th and 12th. Dallas, February 24 and 25th. Philly, March 24th and 25th. Augusta, April 21 and 22. All right. Uh, John Noyes, next Wednesday, October 26th, to the point live at 12 p.m. PT. Uh, he'll be on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and you can scroll to the bottom of str.org to see our links for our social media channels there, and um, not sure what his topic is, but I guarantee it'll be worth listening to. Uh, Alan Schleeman will be speaking at Hazelwood Prez at their apologetics conference in Waynesville, North Carolina, uh, Saturday, October 22nd. And I am going to be—oh, it doesn't have my dates here. 
I am going to be, it's not on here, oh well. Well, next week I'll tell you where I'm going to be that following weekend. I'll be in North Carolina, but I don't have the details here at the moment, but I will be in Owasso, Michigan uh, this weekend. So uh, small towns <laughs> should be relatively easy to find me if you're interested. All right, friends, uh, let's go to your calls. And uh, here's Miss, uh, Mr. Pace, patient Jason in California. Thank you for your patience, Jason. <laughs> no problem. Thank you, Greg. Hi so I have what I hope will be an, an interesting question for you uh, related to an objection against pro-life advocacy. So it's not an objection to the pro-life point of view, but rather against advocating against abortion. So I've I've heard you address in previous episodes of STRF, and I think also this um, podcast, you know, the idea that some have suggested that Christians should actually support abortion on the basis that all the aborted children will go to heaven, or as if they were allowed to be born, you know, the majority would statistically speaking, end up going to hell. And you cited a number of problems with that, and I think rightly determined that to be a ridiculous objection. Yes. But uh-huh. there is a stronger form, I think, of the objection that I'm interested to get your thoughts on, and that has to do with Christian advocacy against abortion. So the argument wouldn't be that Christians should support abortion, but rather that we should not advocate against it. In other words, don't try to stop people from getting abortions. So on this objection, the person would agree that abortion is morally evil. And they would even say, you know, the Christians themselves should not get abortions, that we're right in taking that position. But nevertheless, it is still morally evil for us to actively oppose other people getting abortions because it will result in a greater evil, namely those children um, you know, suffering eternal damnation rather than just the temporal physical death. Yeah, so they can portray this as a, like a moral dilemma, if you will, where you've got these two goods. Do the good of saving somebody from the moral evil of physical death or uh, try to save them from you know, the suffering of eternal life. And when faced with those two, they would say that you know, saving them from eternal death would be the the greater good so that we should just kind of step back and oh, I not advocate against abortion. I get it and I, I I'm I guess I'm trying to hold back frustration a little bit now. First of all, I think that there's no significant difference between the uh, by the way, let me just ask you this. Is this your particular view or is this something that somebody has raised that you're trying to answer? No, this is not my view. Okay, no. good. Well, I, I, if it was your view, then I would be a little more tender with you when I express my frustration <laughs> with it. But um, because I think it is substantively the same as the other one. But I, I do have, it does, it, there's a couple of things going on here. So let me just ask you some questions. And uh, these aren't trick questions, but I'm just kind of laying the foundation for a point. Okay. Um, is God the one? Um, who? Let me back up and put it this way: Who is the one <laughs> who assigns sinners to hell? God. Right. Okay. I know you're thinking. Wait a minute. Is this a trick question? No, it's not a trick question. <laughs> I don't think people go to hell of their own free will. It is their free choices that eventuate in hell. But they're not saying, "I want to go to hell." That's not what. So God is the one who sends them. Is that a good thing? 
that God does that? Yes. Yes, it is, because God is executing justice. If it's not a good thing, then God's doing a bad thing. Okay, that means going to hell is not an evil. It is a good thing. It is justice being done, or else God would be committing the evil. Now, this is where I know you might be scratching your head and other people listening. Wait a minute, it's not an evil. Are you kidding? This is where a distinction needs to be made between something that is objective and that is something that is subjective. Hell is not a subjectively good place to go. That means it's no fun. But it is an objectively good place because an objectively good thing happens, and that is justice. God is the one who made hell, and it's made for a purpose, and that is to accomplish justice, which is a good thing. So when somebody says, if the children live and they may go to hell, that's a greater evil, that's not an evil at all. It's not good subjectively for the people who go there, but it's not an evil. Right. So that's a really, really important distinction. Are you with me so far? Uh, I, yeah, I completely agree. But okay. what if to be charitable and to try to fortify the objection, rather than casting it in terms of two moral evils, casting it in terms of suffering? Okay. You know, to stop the abortion is to prevent them from experiencing a suffering, but it then allows them to go on to experience a greater suffering. Okay. So similar to you do a, no, you I do get a you. good act to stop somebody from stubbing their toe, but your act ends up causing them to get hit by a Mack truck, and so you've actually increased their suffering by right. doing them more right. good. Okay, so the, a couple of distinctions here, and I'm going to trade a little bit on the earlier comment, and then also go into a, another aspect of why this is bad a bad complaint. Um, a, uh, and that is, uh, you are you are trying to save them from a suffering they actually deserve. So it isn't a, an example of an innocent suffering. Now I'm, I'm not obviously encouraging people to let people let others get what's due them. We want mercy for them, just like we want mercy for ourselves. All right, but the but but it's not like. We are preventing an act of innocent suffering. No, we are preventing—well, if the argument were to go forward, it would mean we'd be preventing an act of justice in which they got their just desserts. Uh, Once again, the suffering that they experience is not subjectively pleasant—not good in that way—but it is objectively good because it's an expression of it's an expression of God's justice. However, what is it that we must do in order to accomplish this um, lessening of the subjective element of suffering, that they, they don't like it even though they deserve it? Well, we have to do something that is objectively evil. We have to, we, we have to be silent when children are being butchered. That is an evil in itself. Okay? Now, the consequence, that's not our responsibility. We don't do evil that so-called good might follow, and that's what we have in this particular case. An advocacy either of abortion, that would be the previous question you're referring to that I answered in the past, or the silence in the face of it for the same reason. 
But either case, whether it's you know whether it's active or passive, there is still a moral there, there's still a moral responsibility. It's called it's the difference between malfeasance and nonfeasance. Malfeasance is doing something that's wrong. Nonfeasance is not doing something that's right that you're morally obliged to do. So the the argument's not going to go through here. Plus, there's also a taking the roof off element here. Okay, why not? Why why oppose to follow this particular concern? Why oppose um, infanticide? Because here we got children that are have not been old enough to make a decision one way or another, and they could end up deciding against Christ and going to hell. So what we'll do is we won't just um, not protect them in the womb, but we won't protect them at all in the first four or five years of their lives. And if they die and if people kill them, well, that, at least they're going to heaven, and they're not going to later on choose against Christ and stay in rebellion because they're not going to choose anything later on because they're dead. So the right. same line of thinking that applies to this that makes it seem like advocacy is morally wrong applies to not just infanticide, if you mean an infant, but also a two-year-old or a three-year-old. I right. know of kids that have become Christian at four years, four years old, and it seems to have stuck. But certainly the first couple of years, that's not going to happen. There's not enough understanding. So why don't we just kill? let them go then? If people are going to kill babies, let them kill the babies. Right. It almost turns all birth into a moral evil, <laughs> because by creating any children and allowing them to be right. born, you are well, sending the, someone to hell. So. Right. So this is an example of using an immoral means to accomplish what a person thinks is a moral end. And the morality of, of, a, of an action, it has to, you have to take into consideration the totality, both the means and the end. Okay, and the intent, you know, these are all factors of moral actions, and the end may be noble, but if the means is immoral, then the end doesn't justify those means. Okay, there, people say, well, the, 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 the end never justifies the means. Well, that's an overstatement, because there's always a relationship morally between means and end. The end might be to buy your parents a house. The means might be to work hard. Well, then the the end is justified by the means, or to rob a bank, and then that particular means isn't justified by that end. Maybe I reversed it there just a moment ago, but you get my point. And so, uh, in this case, the end, oh, it's noble, get him into heaven. What's the means to do that? It's not a moral means. And so, it mean, that means, then, that the act itself taken in its totality is not morally sound. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, what would you say for those who might appeal to Jesus' statement regarding Judas to justify this position, namely that it had been better if he had not been born, you know, with the assumption that what Jesus is trying to say there is if Judas hadn't been born, then he would not have betrayed the Messiah. He would not Correct. suffer eternal damnation. So, you know, that Jesus himself is saying it's better not to be born than it is to go to hell. So by people ensuring that some are not born— they're just agreeing with Jesus. They've done something that is better. Okay, How so would you respond to okay, that? So now we have a question. If, if Jesus is talking about objectively better, then God's—would God's—if if it's objectively, 
in a sense, more virtuous, so to speak, for for him not to go to hell because he never was been born, then if God is the one who sends him to hell, is God doing something good or is he doing something bad? He'd be doing something bad. Correct. So Jesus could not be talking about the objective element. He must be talking about the subjective. Judas would have fared better had he never been born. But that, of course, is even a it, this is, uh, I don't know if hyperbole is the right word, but it's it's not a, a, a statement that reflects any realism, because if you haven't been born, that means you hadn't existed, and so then you can't fare better in non-existence, because there's no you to fare better. It's, 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 a, it's a statement about the subjective state of affairs, and not, and not about the moral, the moral state of affairs there. That's the way I would take it, because the alternative is 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 that God would be doing evil to judge Judas. It wouldn't be better; he'd be doing a bad thing. And incidentally, just as an observation, for those who are annihilationists, um, that is that God punishes by annihilation; he just wipes them out. Uh, that kind of goes against what Jesus said, okay? Because had he never been born. He would not exist to be punished. Annihilation says you cease to exist after you die, and that's your punishment. Well, then there, then there's no, there is no difference for Judah if he was born or not born. If he wasn't born, he wouldn't exist. If he was born and ceases to exist when he dies, then he doesn't exist either after death. But Jesus said it would have been better if he hadn't been born. That means there must be punishment after death. And so, therefore, the annihilationists are wrong. By the way, that is the view of atheists. Atheists think, I won't exist after I die. It doesn't right. bother them a bit. That's not punishment for them. You know, that might be creepy to think of one's own non-existence, but it certainly isn't a judgment. They wouldn't take it as a judgment. So it's interesting that that the atheist understanding of the afterlife is exactly the same as the annihilationists' understanding of the afterlife. They're right. fine with that, you know. So in a certain sense, why would, why would a, a, an atheist want to adopt the view of, an, of uh, the Christian view of someone who is also an annihilationist? Because the atheist is, is going to say, well, things are going to end up for me just the same either way. So why should I take the burden of your religion if all I'm going to do is disappear when I die, according to your doctrine, that's what I believe anyway. I'll just stay an atheist. See the point? Right. No, exactly. It's kind of crazy, huh? Okay. <laughs> all right, Jason, I sure appreciate your call. Thank you. Okay, thanks so much, buddy. Bye. Bye. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with Tim in Berryville, Virginia. Have you seen our brand-new website, Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Standard Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with a confidence clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. 
Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Final segment here on Stand to Reason. Greg Kokel, your host, and in Berryville, Virginia. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, Mr. Kokel. How are you doing today? Uh, okay, I'm doing fine. I just <laughs> I was ribbing Amy K. Hall, and she didn't think it was that funny. So um, I'm chuckling, and she's not. Well, now she's <laughs> chuckling because I'm calling her out. She says, "Get going, get going." Okay, so <laughs> your turn, Tim. Well, um, my question is uh, regarding the fivefold ministry. Um, I'm a current, I'm a youth leader in my church, and um, we're currently in the process of establishing our like foundational doctrine of our church. Right. And uh, I know, I, I mean, I, I I have an inclination of where I stand on the matter. I just don't know how to articulate it in a way that could bring someone else that understanding so i don't know if my footing is actually right so i just um, primarily the question is like with the the uh, apostles and prophets what is their function uh in today's uh body of christ or right. today's church right well there um there was quite a bit of discussion about this issue and there's uh, quite a bit of excess so let me first offer a title to you and uh, the title of the book is called God's Super Apostles, and uh, the authors are Doug Guyvet and Holly Pivek, P-I-V-E-C. Guyvet is G, what, E-I-V-E-T-T-E? I don't know, but you can find just by the title. I actually saw Holly Pivek last week, or just a couple of days ago. Oh, yeah, she was in Seattle uh, for the Seattle. She has a great author, authoress with Doug Guyvet, and they're actually working on a second book dealing with this issue, okay? The apostolic movement that uses this verse as uh, part of its proof text, and then they go off into excess, and these are authority excesses, okay? And I've been a Christian 49 years, and I'm trying to think. I would say the third year I was a Christian, a movement like this popped up. It was called the Discipleship Movement, and it's a movement in which the discipler takes on a certain inordinate authority in the life of their disciples. So it was a toxic authority thing going on, all right? Now, um, <clears throat> this isn't the Discipleship Movement, but it's like it, and there have been others that have been like this where 
leadership takes an inordinate authority and make making the claim that they are somehow endowed by God with this certain kind of authority, and we have the same thing now in this new apostolic reformation. And uh, churches like um, up in Northern California, what is it, Amy? I can't read your lips. Bethel, yes, Bethel Church. Oh, Bethel. Yeah. And, but there's a whole bunch of them around the country, and this is actually gaining momentum. Um, and the, the there is an errant ecclesiology, in my view. That is, they misunderstand how the church is meant to work. But this is a key verse for them, okay? So I'm glad to be able to talk about it, because it does have significant ramifications. Now, I, I'm starting out by saying people who have understood leadership in the church to be the way these leaders have developed these verses end up in a toxic circumstance, all right? So this is not a good sign. It suggests maybe there's something wrong with their theology, and there is. And to me, it's obviously wrong, and it's easily rectified. So let me read your your passage here, and then we'll look at a larger context. Um, In verse 7 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, it says, to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's saying that there's one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all and through all. Okay, so this is all the oneness of our faith, and we're all together. But each of us has a different gift. Verse 7. Right. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives, captive a host of captives, and gave gifts to men. That's the key there. I gave gifts to men. Hmm. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now, that could mean to earth. I'm not entirely sure. But the key is that when he came, he gave gifts. Verse 10, he who descended is himself also he ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things, the ascension. And he gave, now we're back to the topic, he gave that would be he gave gifts to men, verse 8, verse 11, and he gave some, now we got categories of gifted people, mm-hmm. some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. And there's a little debate as to whether pastors and teachers are two separate or if this is pastor-teacher. Okay. Right. Now, um, my take on this, and so also with these who kind of hold to this new apostolic reformation, is that the apostles and prophets are operating in an authoritative role. Apostle just means sent out one, mm-hmm. and a prophet is one who speaks out God's Word. But characteristically, they have been either travelers like missionaries gone out, sent out, or they have had an authoritative role speaking God's Word authoritatively to the Church. And the same thing with prophets. It's not the same of having the ability to make a prophecy, but rather having a, a prophetic, that is, leader, authoritative leadership role in the Church. Okay, you see the di- distinction there? Okay, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets. Notice that those two came first. 
some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Notice that apostles and prophets come first. Those who read this say, yes, see, Apostle Paul was an apostle, Apostle John and Apostle Peter, and now we have our apostles who speak for God, and we have our prophets who are also in this authoritative role. Okay, so that's the way that passage is taken. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I want you to—you have your Bible in front of you? Yeah. Is that yes? Yes. Turn back a page to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Chapter two, 2, and what's going on here in chapter 2 is Paul is talking about how the Gentiles have been folded into the church. Chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sin— which you were without hope, you were by nature children of wrath, yeah. without God, and without hope in the world. Verse five, ten, dead in your, then, then by grace you've been saved, God's mercy, through faith, and then we are His workmanship. And I'm bouncing quickly through chapter verse ten. Therefore, remember, by the way, you Gentiles, you're called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Remember that you are at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That's, that is the commonwealth, is the Jewish nation. Mm-hmm. And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, watch the words. You are formerly were far off. You have been near, brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace and made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So the the law was meant to separate the Jews and the Gentiles to keep the Jews pure in their religion and not participate in the idolatry of the Gentiles. But in the New Covenant, that wall has been broken down. That's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. All right, mm-hmm. chapter 2. He is our peace. How, what do you mean, peace? He's made both groups into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, Caden ordinances, though he himself may make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. By the way, <clears throat> and then reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity, which is the law. Okay, and he preached peace to those who are far away and those who are near. So this, he's describing how the church now is built. The dividing wall is gone, and then neither Jew nor Greek. It's all one in Christ based on the new covenant. So you follow me so far, right? Yes. Okay, now this is where we get into your point. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. He's talking about the new covenant here, one spirit. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, and you're of God's household. Okay, God's household. What What is God's household at this point, broadly? God's what household we, is, what we're we, the temple, we're the, the church. The church, exactly. So we're talking yeah. about God's household, the church. Now, how did God build the church? Verse 20, having been built on the foundation. What's the foundation? That's the bottom um, level, right? Something that you can't you can't keep putting. You can't keep making foundations. Yeah, you got you, you, the the foundation is what holds everything else up. Right. Foundation right. of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Do you think that has any bearing to what He talks about in verse chapter four about prophets and and apostles? Yes, He yeah, said God has given gifted people right, and the prophets. 
he mentions apostles and prophets first in chapter in the list in chapter four, right? And now he's yeah. mentioning the apostles and the prophets are part of the foundation. That's why he mentions them first. And Jesus is the cornerstone. Okay? And then you build a building on that, being fitted together and growing in the holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built up together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Okay, mm-hmm. now it was tedious because I, I jumped all the way back to chapter 2 and kind of laid all that out. But you can see now why the the flow of thought and the argument that Paul is offering in Ephesians helps us understand, Ephesians 2 helps us understand what he's talking about in chapter 4. He said, there's a whole new thing happening, and now we got the new covenant, the barrier of the wall of the wall of the law is gone, we are all together in one body. Okay, one body is like a temple, it's like a structure, and the temple has a foundation, and at the foundation are the prophets and the apostles, and Jesus is the cornerstone, and then we build on top of that. So, I take this then, not that chapter 4 and uh, verse um, 11 as being all new apostles and prophets all the time. We aren't keep building, we don't keep building the foundation. Right. We, we, the foundation is already laid. Right. So we don't need the new ones. We got the apostles that gave us the word, and that's what we use as a guideline, not some guy who thinks he's inspired by God as an authoritative prophet or apostle in that sense. And read First Peter 5 because it talks a little bit about the excess of over-exuberant leadership there. Okay, the end of 4 and the beginning of 5. Thank you for the call, Tim, in Berryville, Virginia. That's it for our time, friends. Greg Coco for Stand to Reason. Give him heaven. <laughs> 